I met with Julie on a sunny morning just after the 4th of July to talk about her life. We sat on cushioned chairs on a covered deck, surrounded by sleepy dogs. It was mostly quiet that day, except for the persistent bird song. So Julie, one of the first questions I ask everyone, and it's, um, it's kind of a, a think back question, is your earliest memory as a human being, the, kind of the first thing that you might remember consciously, you know, maybe you're three or four or five years old. Do you have a, a specific memory? Most of the early stuff that I remember are stories that have been told back to me. Um, I have a really fallible memory, which is awful, you know, um, especially being an archaeologist and historian. I don't remember a lot. Um, so I guess the earliest story that was told back to me um, was it was a beautiful, sunny October morning, and my parents decided that they were going to make a baby. You know, and I can show you the damn house, uh, you know, where where it was. We drive past and, you know, that's one of those great things about being a kid and having, um, you know, your friends be told, that's where Julie was made. Um, as far as stories that I, rem I remember. Like the, but like something you might remember from your childhood. So how far back you can um, go? Chickens. There have always been chickens. I don't know why there's always been chickens, but... Uh, I remember I have memories of being chased by chickens. I remember little baby chickens, but uh, I don't even know where that comes from, you know. Your parents had chickens, though. Always. 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 Ever since I was, you know, forever. Even when we moved to town, we had chickens. So I get to the first question, and I don't even really have a good answer. It's not whether it's good or anything. It's just I always try to think about, well, and so maybe when you were school age, is there a memory that you have that sticks out for you? Um, I think that when I started school, it was a rather, uh, it was a lot of change happened about that period of time. Um, so I, I grew up very, very rurally. We didn't have power, we didn't have water, we didn't have any of that. No neighbors, no kids. Um, I was just raised with a couple adults. And I started school. I remember kindergarten and wearing overalls because that's what every cool kid wore. But I didn't realize that that wasn't true. Um, so we moved to town and um, Got electricity, running water, neighbors, people. I mean, it was weird having people around. And a baby brother, all within a period of months. So I just remember a lot of a chaos and change and the, the having to go to school and being around kids and then having to share my parents. And now we have to live in town. It was, I, I joke with my parents. I'm like, I'm still trying to get over that. You know? How old were you when your brother was born? Five. Yeah, so it was in that period of time that we moved to where there were people. You know, I grew up, we had, no, I mean, and maybe that's why I remember chickens, because we had nothing. There were, it was my parents, down the road a ways, there were um, some other folks that worked on the ranch. Um, I used to spend time with the Japanese cowboys, and we didn't really see people. My parents tried to leave me with babysitters, and I traumatized those poor ladies to the point that they would be like in tears and have to, you know, come. What, what, what about you traumatized them? Oh, a lot of screaming. I guess there was a lot of screaming. And I bite, 
um, you know, that then and, and I now too. Still might. <laughs> <laughs> it's just more fun now. And I get yelled at less. Um, so, yeah. So you were really attached to your parents and when they left you behind, maybe that you were frightened? I didn't understand. You know, I, I was not raised um there's no preschool or there, Montessori oh, no. school or... there were no kids yeah um I was born in 71 and my folks had just moved from San Francisco and they'd been in Idaho a couple years before they decided to have me and uh it was just a bunch of hippie freaks from California that would migrate through and um Japanese cowboys, hippies, what do you mean rednecks. Like Japanese cowboys. <laughs> they were on. They were actually a group of Japanese um, men who had come to learn how to be cowboys. And this was really early on when I don't think Japan was doing a lot of ranching necessarily. And so these guys were on like it was like a work study kind of thing. And they came and lived on the ranch. And I know there's a number of stories of me just disappearing. Um, I had a horse and why a child that young would have a horse, but he was a little sway back thing. And I would climb on the horse and disappear. And then the Japanese cowboys would bring me home at the end of the day. And uh, I still wonder if I tried to study language, if I have any like residual learned something from those guys, but I don't know. <laughs> so when you were a young woman, so maybe you're in your teen years, did you have this idea or dream of what your life would be like? No, I wasn't really that creative. Um, yeah, it. everything that's happened up to this point has, if I had... Basically, whenever I try to plan something, it, it blows up in, in like unbelievable ways. So, um, you know, not making plans has really worked out better. Um, all of the really good things that have happened and all of the, the, the things in life that have come along have been pretty random. You know, I'm, I remember planning, I am leaving Idaho. I will never, ever come back to this state. There is no way ever. I've been gone a year in uh, my entire, you know, lifetime. Uh, I left for a year and went, oh, yeah, well, that sucked. Came right back. Um, you know, I had planned when I went to college initially um, that I was going to be a teacher. And that fell apart dramatically at the very end, which was actually perfect. Um, the program I'd started in, I went all the way through. I did wonderfully, absolutely excelled at it. But there was this one silly test that you had to take to get into the program. And you had to sit down and write an essay for an hour. And on whatever topic they gave you, not a problem. I can write, you know, like nobody's business, but I can't spell consistently. Um, so I failed the test three times. And even though I had completed the program, I didn't meet the qualifications to get into the program, so I wasn't able to graduate. So is this is it just is it like a is it like a transposing letters or is it I don't is know it dyslexia or it's it's just I'm a hor I've just been a horrible speller. Huh. I remember in elementary school we had this thing where you had a hundred words yeah. and you had to go get scholarships or sponsorships from people and you know and and I would study and I would study and I would and I would get like 
62 out of 100 words right. And I'm like, how? You know, I'm not generally dumb. I just can't spell. You're a yeah. phonetic speller? I don't know. I guess I they that was one of, I was one of the first students that they did phonics with and my mom is contends that's why I can't spell. That and <laughs> the failing of the education system that didn't teach me Latin. If I had learned Latin, I would know how to spell. So, I don't know. It's So as a result, I got kicked out of a program. I was four and a half years into my undergrad and was ready to graduate and uh, they're like, yeah, no, you don't so get did, to do that. Were you, were you kind of grieved about that or, I mean, that seems like it would be a hard blow to spend four and a half years is a long time for a person who's only in their 20s. That's a good chunk of your life. Yeah. Um, it was just a part of the college experience for me. Um, I've been a super nerd and I was taking 18, 20 credits every semester. Um, so I was pretty far along. I could have gone down a number of paths. I was actually, you know, potentially pre-med. I thought that was going to be neat, but there was a lot of sciencey classes and didn't go down that path. And so when I got to the point where I wasn't in the teacher's ed program anymore, um, I just started taking some random classes and I just flipped through the catalog and I needed an eight o'clock, I need a nine o'clock, I need a 10 o'clock, I need 11. So I, I have a really wide range. And then it was about year five and a half that college was like, yeah, you have to graduate now. And I'm like, but, but I already had a plan. You said no. Can I ask where, where you were? At Boise home? State. Yep. And so at that point they're like, you've been here long enough. I was starting to make their graduation numbers look bad. Um, because I hadn't graduated. I was Dean's List. Um, I had had one B, so I wasn't complete 4.0 at this point, but uh, I was I was a good student. I paid on time, everything. Um, but they're like, you gotta go. So I remember going down the register's office with uh, my transcripts, and I'm like, okay, what am I gonna be? And the lady was like, oh honey, that's not how we do it. You tell us what you wanna be. And so this goes back to like not really having a plan. I'm like, no, you're the one telling me I have to leave. You tell me what I can be. So they looked at my credits and um, I could have been an English major, but I would have had to have taken a night class. And I hate night classes, so I didn't do that. And I don't, there was another option in the sciences. And then the easiest was becoming a historian. And they're like, well, you've got all the credits and everything you need for a history degree. You just have to take Library Science 101. That was the only requirement. How to use the card catalog, basically? Basically. Yeah. Nice. So I went into the class and I was like, hey, Larry, because he and I were good buddies. He was the, the lead uh, librarian teaching the class. He knew me from forever. And he was like, what are you doing in this class? I'm like, uh, yeah, um, getting a requirement out of the way. So... Basically, we had an agreement that I didn't have to do much for that class because he's like, you already are a pretty good researcher. So I graduated with 199 credits, um, and I was still ticked. I was one short of 200 because that just seems cooler. Um, with a history degree. So what does somebody do with a history degree? You know. So I went into construction and started building houses. Um, just because it was something that did not require my brain at all. And uh, 
I was the kid that, you know, I had Barbies, but we didn't play Barbies. I built Barbie a house. And I mean, it was a really cool house, you know, out there with the hammer and nails and paint and, and the whole thing, you know. So building was just kind of that natural, easy way in. And it was good money, you know, at this point. It was the um, early 90s and the, the Sun Valley area was just booming. There was so much construction. So it was like, it was easy. And it was like six, five or six years um, building houses and until I realized that I was not physically, I shouldn't be physically trying to keep up with the boys, you know, but dang it, they were carrying heavy stuff. I'm carrying heavy stuff too. And I started wearing out a little bit. And uh, then it was like, well, why don't you go back to grad school? So I went to grad school. And that's where anthropology or archeology span came? Oh no, see, that's another one where I had a great plan, a great plan. I was gonna be a historian. Right? I had a history degree. Why not continue with history? So I went to grad school, and um, it's supposed to be a two-year program. And about year two and a half, um, I was in the history program. I had a committee. I had everything ready. I was almost done with all of my research. I had a great topic. I, was re I did all the research on the, uh, the sexual exploits of Lewis and Clark. Oh, wow. And how sex was used as diplomacy and as power and um, the results of the you know sexual encounters, how VD spread, how many children were created by Lewis and Clark. I mean, there are national heroes, but they were the first deadbeat dads out here. You know, I mean, there is a little redheaded babies up in the Nez Perce and there's no redheaded genes other than, uh, than uh, Clark. And he was a flaming redhead, so. It was a great topic and it would have been perfect because I, I figured I would get published, um, you know, get my thesis done, get published in like Playhouse, Penthouse, in one of them, you know, <laughs> it's fascinating. I would actually got published because it was right before the hundred or the 200 years of them coming out and everything. So the timing would have been great. But once again, best laid plans. I went to go do the, the, the steps of uh, getting, um, you know, final approval for my committee before I got too far into the writing and everything. And uh, two of my professors had taken jobs elsewhere. So I was at a position where um, I went to the the dean and of the uh, graduate program and was like, okay, now what? He's like, hmm, that's odd. And uh, I was like, well, what are, what are my options? And he's like, well, you can take two years off and we'll rehire the positions and then you can come back and get your history degree. And I'm like, I'm at this point in life, I'm not going to wait two years. I'll never come back. How old were you then? Um, mid thirties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's no, no way life too much life is going to happen yeah. in two years to come back to grad school. Um, they would help me transfer my credits to another university. Um, and I could continue my master's thesis. Um, but that meant going out of state and I was not about to pay out of state tuition. You know, I already had myself a pretty good pile of, of student loan debt. So, and the third option was that they were gonna offer me a free um, semester at the at University of Idaho. And at that point I can figure out and change programs and they would help me transfer my credits to another program. 
So I was kind of flipping out a little bit, you know, going like, I had a plan. I had a plan. Once again, I had a plan and it wasn't going to work. So sitting at the bar, having a beer with one of my good girlfriends at the time. And she's like, why don't you just take some anthropology classes? So I was sitting at the bar um, with a gal I met on my first day of grad school. And we both sat in the back of women's uh, history and heckled the professor. So I love her dearly. Was it, was it professor a man or a woman? A woman. Oh, well, yeah. Well. well, we just, we were good at heckling. Um, you know, that's a skill that we really, really perfected in the years that we hung out together. Um, and she's like, if they're going to give you a free, free semester of college, why not take it? And uh, so I'm flipping through the catalog and there's a lithic technology. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun. And uh, it was a Tuesday-Thursday class where Tuesday was all lecture and Thursday you sat out on the lawn and you broke rocks and made stone tools. Um, you know, learn how to make steer beer points and arrowheads and bled every time. There's so much blood. So much blood. Did you nick yourself? Oh, you could, you look at the stuff wrong and it cuts you, you know. Um, <laughs> but the amazing thing about obsidian is it... It's what they used to use for eye surgery because it is the super, super fine, super, super heels. I mean, you could cut, I mean, massive gashes in your hands. And I mean, you're like pouring out blood, tape it back together. And by the next day, it would knit back just because it, it was a clean cut. And uh, I don't know. The professor was great. He was <laughs> irreverent uh, Texan. And uh, it was like, well, wait a minute. Breaking rocks is kind of fun and took a couple more anthropology classes and really focused in on the archaeology side and, and realized that there was a career out there where grown-ups can make up stories about dead people and play in the dirt and get paid for it and, and be considered a, a professional. I'm like, I, I think I have those skills. So again, the through the randomness of life, end up with an, an, an anthropology degree, specializing in archaeology, and then it's time to get a job, you know, and uh, so I was off, I threw paper all over, you know, trying to come up with a, a, a real big kid job now, right, because it's, I've now invested 13 years in higher education. I, I had a degree before I started at Boise State, so put in some time and now it's like time to, you know, maybe get a job. And I was offered a full-time permanent big kid job in Salt Lake. And then I was also offered a, you know, similar position working for a cultural resource management company in Seattle. And then offered this part-time, you know, seasonal position in Chalice, Idaho, working for the Forest Service. And I just wasn't ready for a big kid job yet. Um, so I was like, I'll be a seasonal. That sounds like a great thing. Spend six months, do some good work, and then go start life. Well, that didn't work out either. Um, the, within a month of me starting that position, uh, my supervisor quit to take another position. And about a month after that, I got that job. So now I've got a semi-permanent position with Forest Service. It had a four-year lifespan. So I was like, okay, four years. I can work that out. And then was told that it was going to convert into a permanent position. No worries. Just, you know, 
this world, you're only going to be temporary for a couple years and then you'll have a real job. So I bought a house, kind of settled into Chalice, and my plan was I'm going to live in Chalice. Well, four years go by, they didn't convert me. Um, so now I'm unemployed and kind of going, I don't know what. And of course, the universe at this point has given me the most amazing man that I've ever met, you know, and actually somebody I would trust and want to be with and all of that. And but I don't have a job. So throwing paper out, you know, because like, everybody needs a job, right? And uh, ended up getting hired by the Bureau of Land Management in Northern California. So I left. And it was it was a really hard decision to make. Um, because you felt like you had roots here? I own a house. You know, I've got a good friend network. My parents are only a couple hours away. And then there's this guy that I kind of like, you know. And it was just like, how, how can it all, like, be coming together and all fall apart at the same time? You know, but again, it was just one of those, like, kicking the pants. Um, and it was, it was actually, it turned out to be a really good opportunity. Um, I learned so much in that position on how to be a federal archeologist, how to work within the, the constraints of federal government. And, and if I'd stayed here, I wouldn't be nearly the archeologist that I am, you know. Um, I, I have a question about just being an archeologist. Is there anything that you, you've ever discovered that you were just absolutely gobsmacked or surprised to find? Every day. Oh. Every day. It's amazing. You know, um, I was out last Monday? No, last Tuesday. And um, I've got a cave that's got a, a unique skylight in it and some rock art in it. And I, I'm convinced that at some point the shaft of light that comes through this skylight will intersect with the piece of rock art. But it's a seasonality thing. So I keep going out there and, and photographing it and everything. So we're out cruising around and it was the dog and I and we'd done all our photos and it is not a summer thing. I'm, I'm beginning to believe I'm going to have to go to this winter, this cave in the winter um, to, to get the alignment. But so we were out and I was like, hey, let's just go look for some more caves. Cruising around, cruising around and he's all hot and tired and I'm all hot and tired and I see this one more, one more little rock shelter up above and I was just like, no, it's always uphill, always uphill. And it was hot, and but there was Great Basin Wild Rye growing out front, and in Where my that um, Great Basin Wild Rye and rock shelters in combination are almost always archaeology sites. Um, I've been in a whole bunch of rock shelters with no Great Basin Wild Rye and no evidence of human habitation. Every single cave I've gone into that has Great Basin Wild Rye out front is a human habitation. I don't know why. I don't know what the combination is. I mean, humans were eating Great Basin Wild Rye as a as a food source, so I think that may be why it's distributed out in the the front. Um, you know, because you're always going to lose a seed or two. But there's a connection in this part of the world with the Great Basin Wild Rye. So we hike up there, and uh, we get in, and it's a scramble. Um, but it was the most amazing little rock shelter. Um, it was in limestone, so it was, uh, you know, created by water, um, precipitating out and making, making hole basically. 
there was um, stalactites on the ceiling dripping down and a little a little indented area that you could have easily put um, a pot or anything to collect the water from the roof. And immediately that's where the dog went and put his little old belly and he crapped out and took a nap. And, uh, you know, we sat there in the cave for a while. And if you look out the, the window of the cave, there's Thousand Springs area and Mount Bora is just like, right there i mean just gorgeous so this is like a fancy condo yeah and it's got rock art in it you know so to to find rock art is that that's my real love um that's what i did my uh my archaeology thesis on so it was it was amazing you know and that was just a tuesday hiking around you know um historic sites are crazy because a lot of what we have in this part of the world are mining sites so you get this perception in your head of what a, you know, the rough and tumble, frontier-bound um, mining person. And then you find Pond's cold cream, you know, and you find, you know, tons of, you find, find people's sins in historic oh. archaeology sites. Because the stuff that preserves are the tobacco cans, the liquor bottles the um coffee tins you know so a lot of the people you find vices lots and lots of vices um medicine bottles you know because laudanum just sounds like it must have been too much fun back in the day you know so okay. yeah lots of fun stuff up until the cooper's ferry site i had the second oldest radiocarbon date um out of an archaeology site on the clearwater i missed the oldest date by 100 years but now I'm way out of the range with the 16,000-year-old date. But. So I, I ask a, another kind of question, and um, I'll give you a second to think about it. How, how do you see yourself versus how do you think other people see you? So this might be like how you visualize or your own your own being versus how you think other people see you and, and what is that how is that different um i guess everybody likes to think of themselves as a you know and a the really nice person and i give back a lot and i'm always trying to help people out and i'm really very concerned about you know the feelings of others and and how other people are doing but i don't usually get that impression from other people you know i think from the outside world um i i guess i'm not i don't see myself as very likable um from the outside world you know i have a i don't make a lot of close friends um work is often very contentious and i think that's the nature of the job too um archaeology and the federal um landscape is just it's it's you're set up for conflict. Um, you know, I, a lot of, oddly enough, people will come and tell me things that they're like, I often get that. I've never told anybody this, but I think that I can trust you. And I'm like, why, 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 why are you burdening me with your, your drama and your, but thank you for trusting me to keep that secret. So, um, I've got dirt on a lot of people, <laughs> but, uh, not likely to use it. Um, I don't know. I, um, you, you say that you don't think that you're likable. 
but then you then you say that people tell you things. So there must be something about you that is translating to other people that is a comfortable thing. I think there's some personalities that um, are, you know, that we, we mesh, we click. Um, I don't suffer fools lightly. Um, and uh, I think that that can be taken as being bitchy or, or standoffish or, but, uh, you know, it's, I don't like to judge people, but I do, you know, and there's, there's certain people that it's just not worth the energy or not worth the effort. And, and I guess that I wish I wasn't like that because everybody has got a story to tell and everybody's got something that, that makes them, somebody loves every, you know, somebody loves them for something. Um, but I just don't always take the time. Well, when you say um, that, that you don't suffer fools lightly, do you think that it, it's harder to have that type of attitude to be a woman than it is to be a man? Oh, I think everything's harder to being a woman. I mean, um, I look at my own past and my, my career path, and if I was a man, I, I would not be in doing what I'm doing. Um, but uh, you'd have a different job, you think, like more. Um, I think I would be given more authority, and that's and, what I meant. Yeah, yeah um, I would have a, instead of being questioned, it, and that's the thing that just drives me insane. Um, I'm, and I think I don't know if it's if it's being a woman or if it's being um, me. It's I'm often questioned on is that really true. Yeah, it's really true. Would I be saying it if it wasn't? You know, whereas if you're a man, you say something and it's like, oh, okay, that's the way it is. So you question by other men, by other women or by men or by both? By both. Yeah. yeah. And I guess in the, in when when you were asking the question, I was thinking more of in like the work context. Yeah, I was. But, you but, know. But, um, but then it could also be something else. Yeah. And then when you you know you're in a work context and you know you're you you say that this is the law. Section 106 of the Historic Preservation Act says these specific things. I've been studying this my entire career. This is what the law says. You're in a meeting and you're like, this is what the law says. This is how we legally can move forward with this prog project. And people are like, are you sure that's what the law says? I'm like, e yes, I'm sure that's what the law says. And your job title is what? My job title is archeology. span I know the law. I know the rules and yes it makes your project go slower and yes it creates more paperwork but it's my paperwork so you know I don't know why that's bothering you but this is what we have to be to do to be legally compliant and instead of people saying oh well she's just good at her job and she knows the law there, there's this constant questioning constant Yes, that is the law. Would you like me to quote the section? I can quote sections of the law. And so I'm because I've had to. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, and this might this will be your perception. Do you think if you were a man saying those things that people would question you, or do you think it's because they're trying to get around the law? Um, I think it's because the, because they're trying to um, get around the law, and and because of who's saying it. You know, um, recently we had an, a case where, uh, you know, I was had all my managers on a conference call. And um, we have a confidentiality um, clause that 
because of the, the information that we're dealing with at the federal level. It, it's a trust relationship with the tribes. I can't disclose site location information. I can't tell you where my sites are. I wish I could, you know, for like fire, you know, and be able to say, hey, watch out, there's a big, we can't do that. And, and two of my managers, well, one of my managers was like, well, if you just give us your data, we won't have to inconvenience you um, when we have projects. And I'm like, well, that's my job is to interpret the data when we have projects. But thanks for taking me out of the circle. That's okay. And I'm like, I can't. I cannot give you that data. And my other manager was like, well, in my last job, we had all the archaeology data. And I'm like, well, you probably had a, an agreement that, you know, was in addition to the National Historic Preservation Act. And it's going around and around and around and around. Until my third manager pipes in, he's like, no, that's the way it was. That's the law. You, you can't. She can't give us her data. And at that point, it was, it was done. It was shut down. We'd been talking about it for probably 20 minutes. And then when another male voice came in and said, oh, she's right. I got the little pat on the head. Oh, the little girl's right. And then we moved on. Um, instead of taking me at my word that, you know, I've been a professional federal archaeologist going on 15 years now and they still question whether or not I know what my job is you know or what the law is and I'm like people but the other side of that is it's made me a much better archaeologist because I have to continue to prove and continue to show that I'm competent and uh, you know it's it's like just just trust me I know what I'm doing here you know, you're, you're new to all of this. I've been here a while. Just trust me on this one. You know, and my job is to protect the managers from being sued. Trust me. <laughs> you know, I want, I want, I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm using like how many, how many, how many times a day does that happen to a, a professional woman? It does, I, I mean, it, it, in, in any capacity where she has to, to continuously say, and, and maybe it's because in, in the, the BLM and Forest Service is still pretty male dominated, um, even after all these years. Mm -hmm. But I just I think to myself, how often do you have to validate the fact that you are competent? Every single project meeting. Wow. Every time we have a new project that comes in, and, you know, we're going to say we're going to put in a new pipeline and a new trough. Okay. I have to be able to do the survey for where the pipeline's going to go, and I have to do the survey for where the trough is. How do you continue on and not be resentful? Or are you resentful? It's my job. You know, I, I wouldn't work in federal government if I didn't have a true love for my resource. Um... My parents were, uh, you know, kind of counterculture, and I was—I've been testifying in front of congressional um, fact-finding things since I think I was seven or eight. It was the first time I testified against a, a project I didn't like. So I've been standing up and and trying to, you know, fight the man, fight the government, and realized at some point that the best way for me to be an advocate for archaeology was to work within within the agency and it's from working inside um, all the marching and all the protesting and carrying signs and screaming in the streets 
I don't think I ever really affected change. But since I've been a federal archaeologist, I've, through the process and through, through the NEPA process and all of that, I've saved sites. I've, hell, I've saved trees. <laughs> you know, um, I've been able to, you know, use that influence. And, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of bullshit that goes with it. There really is. Um, and I don't know if it's, if it's a male female thing or if it's just federal bureaucracy. You know, there's a lot of layers of BS that we have to get through. But I'm doing the best I can for my resource. I'm doing the best I can to identify, protect, preserve archaeology for the future. You know, there's things that are going to be on the landscape now um, that are that are that still exist because I made the effort. And if there's a big project, you know, I worked in Nevada for a while um, where there was a lot of large-scale mining, and projects would go in and. One project in particular, it destroyed 260 archaeology sites in just one open pit mine that had an eight-year lifespan. So we're talking about 10,000 years worth of history was destroyed for eight years of gold production. That's heartbreaking. But I'll tell you what, those reports I got out and the work that was done on those 260 sites before they were destroyed is so valuable. Um, from an archaeological perspective. I would have never been able to go out and study 260 sites, but because I was in charge of facilitating them being destroyed, basically, they are documented and researched, and that mining company spent a lot of money, a lot of money doing research and doing work before they had the, the ability to destroy those sites. I'm getting a sort of a, a, of a sense right now and, um, that you try, you try to look at the, the glass half full or the silver lining type of a piece of your work. I, you kind of have to in federal government yeah. or you just get beat down. Mm. Um, you just get, get beat down. You have to look at what you're doing that, that's for the good. And educating the kids. You know, we do a, a fourth grade um, every year, and uh, I am not a fan of children at all, but I will willingly put myself in their presence once a year in mass. Um, we do already Idaho Archaeology Day, and being able to reach out to those kids and say, hey, you know, this is important, and this is why it's important, and, um, you know, doing stuff with the, the schools and all of that, you know, it's, yeah, I don't like it. But somebody's got to teach these kids. Somebody has to give them an opportunity. And especially living where we live, they don't have a lot of opportunities. So if there's a student out there who's interested or whatever, I take them out in the field with me. Let's, let's go be our play archaeologist for a day. What do you want to go look at? All right, let's go find it. And I've got a handful of sites that I take them to and, and let them discover what it is and let them come up with what what does the stuff tell you? Because archaeology is really just a study of trash. It's all, the, it's all the junk that nobody wanted. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on the landscape anymore. You'd still have it, right? You either lost it, um, and that's where you find the occasional arrowhead out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you just lost it. Or you left it behind because it was junk. Um, so what does the stuff, what, what can it tell you? And the stories that it tells me are way different than the stories that it told, um, you know, the, the early researchers 
couple hundred years ago when when the field was getting going. Because you have a different interpretation, or you have more technology, or all of the above. Okay. Um, early on, it was men, men, white men, sitting in their chairs, telling stories about people and things that they'd never seen. And then we started getting people going out into the field and bringing, you know, going into. Um, Let's use Egypt, for example. You know, we go in and we start um, digging up graves and we start digging into pyramids and we start finding all of these wonderful things and we tell all these great stories about these people who are long since gone. Well, in those stories, they're all men. You know, they're all men built the pyramids, men the kings and the, and the stories along this line. Where, and then you go another 30 years and now all of a sudden we have a, a new way of looking at archaeology and holy crap, there's women and kids in the story now. And so you start telling the, the story from, you know, from a more expansive perspective. And then now I'm telling the stories based on all the stories that have been told in the past and how those may or may not be the actual story. And the story we have now has so many more gaps in it than it did 200 years ago when when they were so absolutely convinced that it was man the hunter woman the gatherer now it's men may have hunted women probably gathered and there's all that stuff in between you know and i have the benefit of technology now too you know i can take a an arrowhead or or a um a piece of a stone tool and have it tested for DNA. And I can tell you that this arrowhead that we thought they were hunting bison with, or they thought we were hunting mastodon with, actually had rabbit blood on it, you know? And, and so that's a totally different story now. You have this, this arrowhead that was once a, a killer of large animals, and well, actually it was bunnies. You know, so so the story keeps changing with science, you know, and uh, you know, I've, I've, got a, I've got an app on my phone now when I walk into a rock shelter, I can take a picture of the wall and I run it through a, a program and I can tell you that there's rock art there. Not rock art you can see necessarily, but that because of the pigments and time change and all that, I can tell you there's rock art there. Where the, the site forum that I was, you know, looking at that was recorded in 1966 doesn't mention anything. Well, I could go take a picture and see stuff that can't be seen, you know. So, I got a lot of tools now that they didn't before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the topic just a yes. little bit. And this is a, a question that, I, that you can think on um, because I think it's important for people to understand we are always... All of us have moments of, of, of fear and terror, but I'm always curious about, has there ever been a time in your life when you've been truly, truly terrified? Mm-hmm. Couple of them, actually. Um, it's usually when it's things that are outside of my control. Um, like the whitewater rafting scares the willies out of me. I'm terrified of drowning. Mm. Absolutely. I hate water. I mean, it, 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 glass of water is kind of suspect. You know, I'm just, I hate water. Um, but because my dad was a rafter um, at some point in his life, I 
gotten into a boat and now my uh, my better half he loves the water absolutely loves the water um so i frequently put myself into situations that just scare the hell out of me um because he loves it and uh, i haven't drowned yet so that was yeah water we flipped the boat once in uh, magic reservoir that was a great, great, great time. Uh, it was the first time we ever went out on a little sailboat. So we bought this little sailboat, and he was out going along, and and we're cruising along, and we first day out kind of thing. There's this key thing that they put on the top of the mast. It's called a little float thing, so that when you flip your boat over, it doesn't go all the way upside down. And turtle, I, I learned a nerd term that day. We turtled the boat. Could not flip it over, could not flip it over, could not flip it over. And uh, so some guys came and uh, they're like, hey, you need a hand? And they were going to help flip our boat over. And we just couldn't do it with me on there. So they were like, one of you is going to have to get off. And I'm like, I'm not driving the boat, so I guess I'm getting off. So I just jumped off. And I'm floating in the middle of Magic Reservoir. And they're going away and away and away. Did you have a panic attack? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was a panic attack, but I was not a happy girl. Not at all. I mean, it was the, you, I couldn't panic. I mean, there, what am I going to do? Like hyperventilate and drown? You know, I mean, I'm looking at the shore going, that's way too far for me to swim. That's too far for me to swim. I've got a life, I had a life jacket on, but it was cold. Yeah. It was really cold. And the guys came back, um, in the, in the, motorboat and they were like so you have an option where do you want to go we'll take you to the shore we'll take you back to the boat i'll tell you shore looked really good was there ever a point earlier in your life when you had some sort of interaction with water that was negative that created this fear um i don't know i don't know um when i was first born we lived at the hot springs ranch and um that with hot springs was right there and i know my mom threatened to drown me a couple times i don't know if that stuck or not um i took swimming lessons and i sink like a stone so i never passed swimming lessons i didn't go in the water i literally did not go in the water of my own choosing until um my dad started rafting and then that was its own little weird thing and now that I'm dating Tommy, um, we every time we go anywhere, it's to the water. Um, so I've had to confront things a lot more that way. But I don't think I ever, like, I, there was no near drowning experiences um, except in rafting context. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know. I've never liked water. Just never liked it. Any regrets? Any regrets? I don't know. Um, there's a few people I wish I'd stayed in contact with. There's some people I wish I'd given a more fair shake um, and not just written off as being, you know, that class of people or that, that category of people, you know. I wish I'd uh, stayed in contact with some friends. Um, 
But again, part of me also can go get a Facebook account and go find people again, but I'm not, haven't done it, you know, so not really a regret I'm following up on. <laughs> um, yeah, in general, I just guess I wish I'd been nicer to people over the years. Why would you say that you haven't been nice? Is it? Because it's, I'm lazy. You know, it's it's easy to ignore people. It's really easy to just to brush people off and, and not engage. It's a lot of work to actually um, get to know another human being. And and it's it's a you got to put some of yourself out there and you have to. It's a it's a risk, you know, and it's work. So, you know, it's easy just to ignore people. And I, that's one thing I wish I did less of, you know. Um, but if you ask a lot of the people that I know, they probably think that I'm, you know, more engaged and more social than a lot of other people, too. So it's, it's how I read it. So you said you're, you were born in 71. Mm-hmm. So you'll turn 50 next year? Yes. So what? What plans do you have for the rest of your life? Are you looking at something specific? Are there things that you still want to do? Well, most recently, we're looking at the, on my birthday is an eclipse, but we got to go to Russia. So there, we've got about, you know, a little under a year to plan. So ideally, we will be watching the eclipse, a full solar eclipse in Russia um, on my 50th. So Exciting. we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Um, you know, I really kind of hesitate to make plans a lot. Because it seems like that even when you have, they haven't always been something that came to fruition. So yeah. are, are you, are you sort of changing your tactic now to not make plans as being the how you make plans? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure it's that conscious of an effort, but, uh, we just recently bought a little piece of land and, uh, I guess the, the 10 year plan is we got 10 years until Tommy can retire. And at that point, I'm retiring as well because there's no way he's going to be home and I'm not. So <laughs> he may have to work a year or two longer, but uh, that's, the, that's the, the deal. So I'd like to have a little passive solar straw bale house on the creek that, um, you know, we have the, the ability to live in and and be able to survive in. I don't know what's going on in the world right now. Everything seems a little chaotic and a little, a little odd, but, uh, I want a spot that we can be safe and that we can, uh, have the gardens and be able to live off grid if we need to. And for years, the only thing I've really wanted to do is grow flowers for the farmer's market. I know it's goofy, you know, nobody will ever make a living growing flowers at the farmer's market, but the idea of just play, having a relationship with plants to the point that they are happy enough that they make flowers, and then being able to share that with people and, you know, to bring in their homes, you know, I know there's, there's some folks who never have flowers in their house, but I've almost always had flowers, and, uh, you know, it might be more uh, beneficial in the big picture to grow vegetables and that kind of thing. But, you know, everybody needs flowers. So, um, you and Tommy, mm -hmm. this really works for you because? 
What's what's what? How is he? How how do you guys connect? If you don't mind me asking. Um, we connected be, because we were really good friends before we ever became lovers. Mm. Um, we were. He was married. He was off limits. It was he was easy to talk to. And I told him some deep, dark, you know, stuff that best girlfriends never know. And he told me his, his stories too. And we were, we were just really good friends. Um, and then unfortunately his wife passed away and then I became kind of a, a support for him for a while. And it was about, it was a year later that we started dating and, and it was only a matter of months after we started dating that I left and I was gone for four years. Northern California. Yeah. yeah. So Northern California for two years and then, uh, Elko, Nevada oh. for two years. And we talked every night. And I mean, when he calls his parents, they're like eight minute phone calls. No, they're two minute phone calls. They, he, they are just so brief, but he would call and we'd be on the phone for an hour, you know, every night talking and talking and, and knowing who he is and, and he knows who I am, foibles and all. And then, uh, it came a time where it was like, I had enough trust and enough, uh, angst with the job that, uh, I quit archeology. span to move back to Chalice. I took a huge town grade and uh, um, quit being an archeologist and took a part-time job with uh, BLM as a uh, monitoring technician. So basically cut in salary, six months of work and uh, to come home. And uh, that, was, that was a big scary step. <laughs> but it's worked, you know. Um, and I, I really think it's because we've been friends first. You, you've had other relationships that were not long-term or successful? Oh, I've been engaged so much of my adult life. You've been engaged how oh many times? I've been engaged three times for a total of like eight years to one guy. Couple months, well, it was more like, more like a year and a half to one. And then two weeks to the third. Um, all great relationships ruined by trying to get married. Um, so you and, and Tommy don't want to get married? Well, the irony is, is I would. I would now, you know, because I'm like, yeah, that would be kind of fun. But with the experience of his first marriage and the, the, the trauma of all of that, he's not really the marrying kind. So, uh, no, probably not. Um, but, but it's sort of all but in name, really, isn't it? Because you guys are together all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah. So when the pandemic stuff all hit, we made the big step. And we both wrote, wrote out our wills. And so I've got power of attorney for him. And, you know, I make all of his decisions. He gets my house. I get his house. Um, you know, so it's for all intents and purposes, yes. Um the only thing is the the standing in front up in front of friends and saying it's real, you know. But everybody knows, you know. We actually have a joint bank account now, you know, for the new property. 
So we put the new land in our both our names and uh, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. He just doesn't want to. And it doesn't matter that much to me. So I'm not pushing it. Um, yeah, I don't know. So you guys have plans together, though. You make plans for the future. Oh, yes. Yes. And it's weird now with the pandemic not being able to know what our next trip is. We travel a lot. Yeah. Um, last year, we did a couple weeks in Hawaii, a couple weeks in uh Is that something New just Orleans. the two of you share together that's yeah. a love? Yeah. We both like to travel. Mm. Um, it all ends up, except for, I think, one one trip, they've all ended up at the water, you know, in some way, shape, or form. But uh, that's, you know... I can find all kinds of things to do, and I don't have to go in the ocean. <laughs> but he's good. He likes the surfing. He likes snorkeling. He's he's a water boy. Um, so who lives in the desert? Who lives in the desert? Yes, but he has a scabbard of boats in the uh, in the garage. So, so you found happiness in your life? Yeah. By oh, yeah. by accepting the fact that you don't have to make plans. Yeah, and I don't know if I if. Even at the deepest, darkest periods of life, there's always space to find joy. Yeah, no. Are you and, a spiritual or religious person? Um, I would say more spiritual. Um, formal religion has not really worked out. I've actually been kicked out of a church. For heckling? I'm just asking. No, 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 no. No, it was, I was, a, I was uh, in third grade at the time and um, Assembly of God Church. Mm. My father was practicing or training to become a minister. My mom was teaching in the school. I was attending school. My little brother was attending school as well. And a new pastor came in who was of the opinion that women's place was in the home and told my mom that she needed to quit her job as the educator. Um, she's got a college degree in education. She's, I mean, she's been a teacher. She's a great teacher. And they were like, you have the wrong kind of plumbing to be a teacher. So, um, you need to quit. And my mom's like, no, I'm not quitting. So in the loving Christian way that this church operated, our entire family was kicked out of the church. My brother and I were kicked out of school. And, uh, that was where I'm like, yeah, formal religion is probably not the, not the way to go. Um, we, mom was raised Catholic, so we went back to, um, Catholic church after that. And, uh, I was baptized, I think when I was 16. Um, that's a very funny picture. Um, but more spiritual, you know, definitely, uh, you know, look at the, the bigger, the bigger energies of the universe and the, and the things there's way more out there than we have the ability to to control or to even even name, you know. So, well, just like you said, that you're finding gaps in the story yeah. of just history. The more the, the more you look, the more you realize you you didn't know. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, the peak of arrogance to think that you actually understand or know. Yeah, you know, we're all guessing. Some people just say it with more authority than others. Julie's life reminded me that no matter what plans you make for yourself, it's always important to be open to your path, even if it's not always apparent. 
Julie took a meandering journey to becoming an archaeologist, but it's a career she genuinely loves because every day there's something new to discover. My small surprise about Julie's life shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. In the 21st century, educated, competent females still have their professional recommendations devalued simply because of their gender. But I take heart that stalwart women like Julie will fight this battle for themselves and for the other young women who will follow.